This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to The Church Boys Freefall Q&A. It's Billy Hollowell here with The Church Boys, and I have Dan O'Donnell on the line. He is a reporter, an anchor, a commentator with News Talk 1130 WISN. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic, Billy. Thanks for having me on. So I have been, um, as any listener of our podcast knows, um, completely obsessed with the Stephen Avery trial. Uh, because, And I think a lot of Americans are. And, and you, having been a reporter who was there um, covering this, correct me if I'm wrong, you were, you were at the courthouse every day during the trial, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. From jury selection straight through to when the verdict is read. In fact, in Making a Murderer, I'm actually the guy who announces that a verdict is in. You can see me pacing the halls on the phone, calling into uh, the radio station that I worked for at the time. It was like a Sunday evening. They, they sort of captured Dan O'Donnell in his natural element <laughs> on the phone and pacing. I love. I actually know the exact scene you're talking about. You are you're a documentary star now. I mean, that's what you are. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. I think I need to demand royalties here. <laughs> was it weird to see? And then we're going to dive into the reason we're talking. But is it? Was it weird to see yourself like that on screen? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I actually was joking to the filmmakers who, during the trial, sat sort of kitty corner from me that, you know, I'm a radio guy, man. I dress like a scrub. You know, I have big shaggy sideburns and all this. I'm like 24, 25 years old and rather unkempt. And I said, if you can avoid it, don't put me in the documentary. <laughs> I mean, most of those press conferences, when you see all the reporters, I'm not there. You can see me in the background because I'm filing reports in radio. We have to do one like every half hour. I'm doing a live phone call with, you know, a radio uh, host or something like that. But yeah, it was weird. I, I first got a text. It was a picture message with one of my friends who's actually originally from Chilton, which was where the trial took pr- uh, place, not in Manitowoc County, but neighboring Calumet County. And it's a picture of my face. And the, <laughs> the text is documentary star. That was literally what she <laughs> said. And I thought, well, it's because, you know, that there's the Chilton connection. I didn't think it was that big. And then it was like around Christmas time. Everybody at every Christmas party, New Year's, all they wanted to talk about was Stephen Avery. (laughs) And my phone's blowing up, and then it becomes this, like, national obsession. It seems like when everybody got back from Christmas break in that first week in January, it's all anybody wanted to talk about. I'm like, oh, my goodness. My first thought was actually pride. You know, knowing the filmmakers... Uh, back then, it was like you never thought that they'd be able to put this together and it would blow up so big it would become this huge obsession. I was really happy for them. And then I started watching and said, wow. I mean, I knew they were embedded with the Avery family, but I didn't realize that it was going to be as one-sided as it ended up being. Well, and that's – and by the way, before we even get into that, what makes me laugh about this whole thing is I get so depressed in January of every year after Christmas ends. It's that whole letdown of there's nothing yeah. to look forward to. Why is it that when that is happening and everybody's depressed, this is what everybody wants to watch in January, right? This is the, this is the subject. <laughs> right, exactly. Because what lifts your spirits better than a horrific murder and a mystery that surrounds it, right? Well, I think what it speaks to, Billy, honestly, is that we love murder mystery entertainment and we yeah. love true crime. It's like sort of a, a look at the dark, seedy underbelly of humanity. And when it really happened, when truth quite literally is stranger than 
and fiction as it was in this case, it becomes even more compelling. Yeah, and, and, and that's why everybody's talking about this. Now, you have, having been there, and I think this is fascinating, you have launched a, a podcast and a radio series on this subject, and it's called Rebutting a Murderer. Um, now, tell me why you did this. Why did you decide to do this series, which you're in the middle of now, and it will be ending, it'll be closing um, out with new episodes this week, correct? Right, yes, so yes. Tell and me then why. on our iHeartRadio app, the iHeartMedia platform, we're going to you know, really, really blow it up and, and, and focus on the other side of the story. I actually, if you can believe it, avoid it, like sort of actively avoided watching the series because it was sort of like I lived it. And it was such a horrible crime. And it, it's actually a weird coincidence. Teresa Halbach, the victim in this case, reminded me of a girl I went to high school with whose name was also Teresa. She kind of sort of looked a little bit like her. And I kept seeing, you know, it's like, wow, this is so weird. And I just sympathized so much with this family. You know, they lose their sister, they lose their daughter. And it's just this horrible crime. Finally, I'm doing talk shows here in Milwaukee and all anybody wants to talk to me about is Stephen Avery. So I decide, all right, all right, I'm going to dive into this thing. And when I started watching it, I said, wait a second, I remember this part. Wait a second, I remember this bit of testimony. That wasn't at all an accurate portrayal of what was said or what the evidence actually ended up showing. And then I started like kind of, you know, talking to people and going online and finding out that people had such a misled idea about this case and what the evidence actually showed that I said, you know what? Who better to do this than somebody who actually heard the evidence the first time? Yeah, no, I, and I think I think that's fascinating. Now, let me let me ask you this: um, Do you? And we're going to make sure we link out so people can listen and and hear everything. Do you think, in your mind, one hundred percent? And I obviously, I think I already know the answer that Stephen Avery is guilty of this crime. Yes, I do. What about yes, Brandon Dassey? What about Brandon Dassey? What about Brandon well, Dassey? Here's the most interesting thing about this series that I've done. It focuses on Dassey's confession quite a bit, because what I've been able to establish is that at almost every point of his confession, every major point he makes, it's substantiated by physical evidence. For example, he says when he answers the door, Stephen Avery is very sweaty. There's sweat DNA, or DNA that's most likely come from sweat, on both the hood latch of Teresa Halbach's car and the car key, which, by the way, was found in the bedroom. I know that's a big source of contention as to whether it was planted. I firmly don't believe that the defense ever substantiated their claims of a police conspiracy. But you've got that. You've got the fact that Avery had just bought leg irons and shackles. You've got the fact that Dassey said, hey, she was shackled up using leg irons and, and handcuffs that Avery admitted to investigators that he had just bought. You've got the fact that her blood is found in the back of her SUV. And this is a big, this is a big defense point. Well, why would they dump her in the SUV if they're just going out to his burn pit right outside the garage? Because what Brendan Dassey said is their initial plan was to dump the body and possibly the SUV, too, in the bottom of a pond. But that pond had dried up, so they drove her body back and then burned it. Now, meanwhile, Avery's alibi is that he was having a bonfire with Brendan Dassey. Dassey says they used bleach to clean the garage. What do you know? His mother asks him, 
Brendan, why do you have bleach stains on your jeans, jeans that were then seized as evidence? Let me, okay, let me ask you a few things, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the other side, I'm, and you've sort of talked to some of these points. There are a couple of things, and now, again, I have no, I have no view on this because I don't know. What I would say is there are, some, there are a few curious elements in the case that, that seem a little bit weird. Does that mean I think he's innocent? No, but, but I want to throw them out. You, you brought up one of them. The thing about the key, there are a couple odd things about that. The fact that only his DNA was found on the key. Why do you think her DNA wasn't found on, that, on her own car key? Well, because it's very possible that Stephen Avery was, in fact, wiping the key down. In fact, it's difficult. This is the, the misconception a lot of people have about fingerprint evidence and DNA evidence, that it's going to stay there forever. And I know they said, well, it's going to be in the nooks and crannies and crevices. That doesn't mean that there's going to be DNA that you can actually extract, because you need enough of a sample to be able to get an actual DNA profile. And oftentimes... A fingerprint will only stay for a little while. Residual DNA will only stay for a little while, at least to the extent that with our testing capabilities that we can, you know, find it. All right. So uh, this is one thing that did, and I want you to correct any holes that are in this, because my most of my sure. knowledge, I've read a lot, but a lot of it documentary as well. You know, it's odd to me that somebody would go to all this trouble to wipe the key down, um, you know, wipe the garage down with bleach and all that, but then leave the car in the car lot, right? It's just, it's yeah. so, with with, a, with the ability to crush it there, why do you think that, why do you think that is, that they, that they would have done that? Well, Stephen Avery's own defense established that he was stupid, right? <laughs> that he was just a dumb guy with, what, a 70 IQ. This is, this is done time and again, time and time and time again. He's dumb. He's too dumb to be able to clean this crime scene. Well, that also suggests that he might actually believe, if he had poor cognitive reasoning skills and poor logical reasoning skills, as someone with a low IQ is wont to have, it would be possible. Remember, he had a 40-acre property with hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of cars. He might have thought that it would be impossible for anybody to ever find this car. Or, in fact, he might have known that it would still conceivably have been possible to find, maybe not DNA evidence, but a VIN number, something to have identified the crushed remains of a car. It's a bit of a, a stretch to say that just because he had access to a car crusher, the fact that he didn't use it is evidence that he wasn't trying to conceal the car. In fact, he did. He put it up this little ridge kind of on the back end of the property. Well, unfortunately for him, the searchers entered the property and his brother, I believe it was Earl, let them in at the same spot. So they're going line by line and they find it within a half hour. It was poorly concealed, yes, but that doesn't mean that Avery didn't conceal it. Right. He could have just been dumb enough to not remember that one detail, to not think through that one detail, right? Well, right. Um, I mean, this is like, and that, that's never entertained as a possibility. It's like we assume because you or I, Billy Hollowell or Dan O'Donnell, would have used the crusher and would have done this. We assume that another human being, even one who is established to have had an abnormally low IQ, or actually it was like borderline, you know, disabled with that level of IQ, we assume that he would think the exact same way as us and be able to logically process actions and their consequences or potential consequences. 
Um, now, one other thing about the car that that was odd to me is that you have blood. You have his blood. You have her blood. Um, he does have a cut on his finger, obviously, when they find him um, or when they arrest him. I guess you know why are why is there not other DNA of his in the car? Right, and and that I mean that is a valid question. You would assume the car would be filled with his DNA if his blood was you know in different spots on the car. Do you, have you ever? You I mean, would. Like, you would, but remember there were also no fingerprints. Okay, so. It's entirely possible. Now, think about, and this is why were his fingerprints not all over the car. Think about what you touch when you're actually in your own car. It's probably like three or four things. You know, the gear shift, the steering wheel, the door, the radio, uh, the, you know, uh, turn signals, that sort of thing. It's possible, and in fact, I think likely, that he's wiping down the car because, well, how would he know how to do this? Because he's probably seen CSI or any number of police procedural shows that show you wiping down for fingerprints, okay? While he's doing this, he's also, and not noticing, because he's got this really deep cut on his finger, and this is what people aren't focusing on. This cut of his was very deep and would have bled a lot. In fact, the defense conceded that, yes, this was a kind of a gaping wound. He wiped it down quickly. Remember, because he probably thinks at this point the cops are, are going to be on his trail, right? They might find this thing quick. So he wipes it down very quickly. As he's doing so, he's spattering blood, but doesn't notice it. Um, one thing that Dean Strang said on the show when we had him on about the under the hood latch, and this was interesting because I had only seen, you know, no, it's sweat DNA, it's sweat DNA. That's what everybody said. I did see the prosecutor on, I think it was CNN or Fox News the other day, say, yeah. um, well, that's only my theory. It, it came from skin somehow, and the assumption based on what you said, the account, which I think is interesting of Brendan Dassey, was that he was sweating and that that's what happened. But what Dean Strang said was, you know, maybe it's possible that an investigator went out to the car, you know, and, and had gloves on, and maybe they're, you know, right. after searching the house. How do you respond to that sort of, you know, that, that I Did guess, Mr. Strang ever conclusively prove that it was, in fact, uh, DNA from a residual glove, or is he just speculating much as he accuses Ken speculating. And he admitted to speculate. You know, he said maybe. He said, right. I don't know for sure. Right. Maybe. But, okay, so it's, it's maybe. But when you've got another theory, a competing theory, that matches up with what a witness, in this case Brendan Dassey, said then I would tend to go with the explanation that is corroborated by what is direct evidence. Now, we can get into an argument about whether Dassey had inadequate uh, uh, assistance of counsel and that, you know, his co the confession was coerced. I happen to think it wasn't. Okay, when you think of coercion, you think of investigators browbeating you, threatening you with all manner of consequences if you don't cooperate, screaming in your face. They merely, and I would urge anybody, if you've got the time, watch the entire confession video. Neither of these two interrogators ever even raised their voice. In fact, it's pretty boring to watch because all they really say is, we know what happened, Brendan. Just tell the truth. Just be honest with us, Brendan. It's a very common technique, but it's presented as being so overbearing and coercive. I mean, what do people expect the interrogators to say? Did you do it, Brendan? No. Okay, then. Have a good day. The one part Meanwhile, that I found... Meanwhile, they've got physical evidence that suggests that he was there and has, in fact, told them a whole bunch of lies, which immediately get them suspicious of him. Um, you know, 
one one other element in in that, and I have not watched the whole thing, and I actually would like oh, to wait, watch. Hold on, one, one more thing before you move on. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go for one it. One more thing was in, I believe it was a filing in 2006. Stephen Avery was asked to name. Okay, Steve, if you didn't do it, who do you think did? Guess one of the names that he put. Brendan Dassey. Okay, um, I mean, like you've got you've got the guy saying, "Okay, it wasn't me." By the way, everybody he named was actually another member of the Dassey family. Right, and his he brothers, came out I think, right. later in two thousand nine and said, "Well, it might have been my two brothers." Oh, well, okay, that's certainly different than what you were claiming a police frame up. Well. One thing with Brendan Dassey that was odd in that, you know, when they were pushing, well, what did you do to her head? What happened to her head? And he didn't seem to have the answer. I think that was, I think some people saw that, you know, well, we punched her, you know. Now, look, again, you can, on the flip side, you could say, well, he's not playing with a full deck and doesn't know, you know, he's just all over the place. He's not living in reality, which is sort of the line I've heard a lot of people say um, about Dassey, obviously. And, And what I did find compelling was that when he did testify, he actually seemed pretty with it during the test when he was testifying. Yeah. I was surprised by that based on the way he looked in some of the, in some of those interviews, at least the edits that we well, saw in them. Obviously that was actually the edits. He's remarkably coherent in other parts of the interview. Think about it like this. He's under a tremendous amount of stress. He is just about to be arrested for a very serious crime. These investigators are saying, what did you do to her head? He's not very bright. He's thinking, okay, they know I did something. Uh, I can't say that Stephen shot her in the head. Uh, I cut her hair? No, that's not it. Jeez, oh, uh, um, uh, uh, we hit her in the head. Uh, he's trying everything. What I interpreted that to be is he's trying to do everything in his power to not admit Stephen shot her in the head. And then when the investigator gets mad, as the documentary portrays it, and he says, who shot her in the head? He doesn't hesitate. He says, he did. He doesn't say, nobody shot her. He doesn't say, I shot her. He says, he did. Okay? Now, meanwhile, the DNA from Teresa Holbach is found on a bullet that was demonstrated to have been fired from Stephen Avery's gun, the same gun that Brendan Dassey says Avery shot her with. Okay? I mean, all of this is lining up. The investigators know this. All right? And the fact to me that Dassey says it right away is that he goes, oh, crap, oh, crap. They know, they know, they know it was Stephen. Fine. You know, and he's thinking, okay, since I admitted Stephen murdered her, you know, there's the thing about, will I be able to watch WrestleMania? He doesn't have a good knowledge of the justice system, so he thinks he might be able to post bail. That's not evidence that he doesn't know how deep of trouble he's in. (laughs) That's a really good point. Now, my last question, because I want people to listen to your podcast series to get the other side of this. Um, what was the single piece of evidence that was sort of like the bombshell to you that made you think 100% they are guilty of this crime? Well, there was almost literally a smoking gun found. To me, it was the bullet, okay? And this is presented as somehow being planted. But remember, it wasn't until Brendan Dassey's confession that they even knew investigators did that Teresa Halbach was shot and shot in Stephen Avery's garage. It was a tiny little bullet fragment. Remember when they tested it for DNA? They used all of it up because it was so small. So it could have been missed. Now, we're led to believe by CSI and all these crime shows that investigators never miss anything. In reality, they're human. It was an incredibly messy garage. It would have been difficult for investigators to have seen it. So they go back to the garage, 
they find this bullet. It's never really explained how Teresa Harbach's DNA would have been able to have been planted on that bullet. That bullet fired from Stephen Avery's gun, his gun kept above his bed, meaning he would have noticed had it been missing, and there were a bunch of spent shell casings in the garage. All that, to me, suggests, beyond a reasonable <laughs> doubt, that Stephen Avery used his gun to shoot Teresa Halbach in the head in that garage. I could ask you a million more questions, but I, but I won't. <laughs> I mean, the key alone is, could be a whole episode, but... Listen, I I appreciate uh, you taking the time, and we loved having you on. I'm going to make sure we point everybody um, over to your series that they can get a chance uh, to check out Rebutting a Murderer. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. It's Common Sense Central, newstalk1130.com, or just uh, look up on your search engine, Rebutting a Murderer. It should pop right up.